Released from eternal damnation in the fiery pits of hell after our last episode, it's yet another episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast, the 164th most popular podcast in Finland. That's right, folks. If you've made it big in Helsinki, you've made it big everywhere. This episode's topic comes with its own soundtrack. That's right. Just as Cher memorably mounted that cannon on the USS Missouri in the video of her ragingly horny song, If I Could Turn Back Time, we come together and ask, what is canon and why? Until fandom screams for release. So join us folks for some bareback style podcasting there's children to retcon That's right, peeps. Finland's gain is your pain. And welcome back to another slightly less lockdown edition of 42 to Doomsday. And to help us wash the concept of canon into the gutter, we are surprised and delighted to welcome back one of our yay oldie guests. He is the Guardian to our Fox News, the Terence to our Philip, the Paul Stanley to our Gene Simmons, the Kaja to our Gugu. And more importantly, he is one of the three people on the planet that Paul Cornell hasn't blocked on Twitter. He's back, and it's about time. It's friend of the podcast, Rob Lloyd, how are you, sir? Welcome back. I'm good. I'm good. I've got to figure out a way to to offend or annoy Paul Cornell so much that he blocks me. That's amazing. Apparently, you don't actually have to do anything. He just does it at random. Oh, really? Oh. Just tweet to him, I like Dr. Who. You'd be automatically blocked. It's fine. (laughs) And how are you, Rob? Good. I'm coping well in lockdown as I revert back to focusing on my backup career for the last two months, which has been my main career. So I'm teaching via remote learning. Um, I'm video conferencing uh, all, all day, every day with my students and sending them work. And it's been a, a fascinating experience uh, setting drama work uh, via the internet, which has been very, very cool. But, and also um, rediscovering a way of communicating with Doctor Who fans through my Who Me page, because I haven't done the show for uh, two years, not since I did my UK tour in 2018. So I've kind of been using it as a site to review the latest seasons over the last two years. And then I just started on a whim, just listing uh, my favorite stories from each Doctor and then my least favorite story from each Doctor. And it's kind of steam rolled over the last two months to become this regular thing and there's been a lot of great interactions from uh, fans who've been following the page over the last nine years or nearly ten years I've been doing this show so there I've been dividing myself from work uh, cleaning up the house which uh, Caitlin and I my wife haven't done for <laughs> ages for like four years since we moved in here and um, and engaging with the who community or all, all the the good the bad and the ugly that that entails do you find it quite therapeutic cleaning out and sorting out things like I do it's been fantastic there's been areas like especially our our spare room we've had we've it's just been a dumping ground for the last four years and since we started uh working from home caitlin needed to use that space as her office so we've we had no choice we really had to force our hands so cleaning that out was just so liberating and it's been wonderful to actually walk around in one of our rooms and go oh we can actually use this now as opposed to you know closing the door and hoping no one notices and apart from the Marco Polo film prints, what other finds that surprised you in that room? Oh, look, you know, who would have thought there was a fully colorized version of uh, Faceless Ones? Um, but, you know, <laughs> the 
but then it was released on uh, Blu-ray, and I've gone, well, well, well I, I'll just hold on to this for a little bit longer. So, yeah. And oh, who would have thought it was actually filmed in colour? Huh, oh, crazy about that. No wonder they did animations in colour. But that's a whole other story. Yeah, I've never really understood this uh, affectation for having uh, colourised versions of black and white material. I suppose if, if the Americans are throwing money or want to do that sort of thing for their release, well, so be it. They've got more money than, you know... God, but it just it never really made sense. Aesthetically, it, it feels like vandalism to an extent. Um, but the, we know the Power of the Daleks is being re-released. Uh, for, for a story that has barely any material, visual material left, it's actually had more releases than, you know, some of the, the actual stuff that exists, which is... Uh, on cassette, on CD, on digital file drive that you could, like, see all with linked in with all whatever telesnaps they have. Yeah, all these incredible different versions. And when I heard the release of it, I went, oh, really? Does it need it? I mean, I knew it was quite bad. And I went back and watched episode one that I have on Blu-ray, and I went, this is appalling. <laughs> I believe I sat in the Rivoli Cinema's largest cinema and watched all six episodes. <gasps> the Dalek stuff is done really, really well, and that looks quite, you know, yeah. but... Um, the movement and the expression and just everything. It's just, it was such an unfair request for, th- for that animation studio to produce that amount of material in such a short amount of time with no money at all. It was really unfair and it, it, it shows. So any chance to get, you know, uh, more money and more time thrown at it is only going to be a good thing for it. They're redoing the backgrounds, aren't they? They bought some pictures or something. Is that right, Rob? Yes. The, uh, someone who was involved with the production had a whole lot of uh, film trims um, and also color, or your color photography uh, from the actual making of the the uh, the story, right? Uh, and they they're utilizing uh, those photos to augment, improve uh, the backgrounds, make them you know closer to what it was, uh, what the production actually looked like, and the film trims. They're actually as that is, they're not. And my understanding is they're not part of the actual episode as broadcast or episodes as broadcast. But they're bits at the very end, so and they are, you know, minuscule in length. But it's uh, there's still a you know visual representation of you know tiny tiny parts of the story. Right. Um, so yeah, they're, they're using that 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 find. Uh, or I, I understand a, a bunch of fans, or at least one well heeled fan, uh, came and, and came along and, and purchased uh, the films at, at auction, or as, as our British friends say, auction. Auction. Yeah. So they're utilizing that. So there's going to be, I think, you know, everyone can go and see with the media release. There's going to be some you know, documentaries and extra bits and pieces that sort of justify having another release. But anyway, until the uh, the Wigan edition is released, eh, Rob? <laughs> as long as uh, yeah. as long as the Omni morons are still coming up with ideas. Me and Rob are called the Omni Twat. <laughs> you mentioned you've been reviewing the last two years, Mr. Lloyd. Yeah, it's been a, an interesting um, uh, amount of time. And interesting is always the word you use when you can't think of anything else. It's been a quite contentious period of time over the last uh, two years. And there's definitely been a um, sort of like any little fractures there were between classic and modern fan. They've really put the wedge in. But it's also caused a lot of fractures even within modern fandom there's quite there's quite a few little factions as well that's caused massive wedges between them as well over the last two years and i was quite supportive of uh season 11 i actually quite liked the shape of it i liked the scale of it i like how it was trimmed right down and and any canon references was really taken away i don't think we even heard gallifrey once and i liked how the doctor was really quite mysterious again and i liked the small scale of it i liked how there wasn't really any overshaping arc i was one of the few people who actually 
liked that intimacy of that season. Um, and then what's happened with season 12 with Chibbers has just gone, oh, okay, I've got criticism for not having enough cannon. Let's throw in all the cannon. So he's picked up his <laughs> big, big, loud mallet. I'm never going to use the word bold. It's very big and very loud movements to cannon that he has done uh, this season. And so that's really uh, shaped and uh, shifted my appreciation of what I like about who and what I don't like about who. And so, um, and he's really caused some massive ripples and those ripples have, <laughs> I know I've been brought on many times to be the voice of reason about the modern season, <laughs> but there's some, some, some stuff done this season. I just went, I just can't take it anymore. I can't be reasonable with this. I'm sorry. So time to man the barricades. Yes. It's time to go like Les Miserables. Let's all be, you know, the French students and getting ready to be absolutely massacred by by whatever. <laughs> Would Chibnall argue that uh, this was part of his plan from the beginning, that he would start smaller, more intimate, as you describe it, and then go wide, as he has? I mean, uh, you say he's you know thrown in all the cannon, and then at the very end of it, he threw out all the cannon. It is very much a case of... I'm, I'm be very fascinated to find out as well like there's a massive shift in from season eight to season nine with Capaldi's performance. If you see his first season, he is very prickly, very angry, very unlikable in many ways. And then there is a seismic shift from season nine. We go from, you know, the start of season eight where he goes, I'm not a hugging person. And, you know, um, you know, I've been around for 2000 years and none of them good. That's his introduction. And then we shift to a year later, we see him coming out, you know, in sunglasses with an electric guitar riding a cannon, <laughs> which I personally love. But I'd be fascinated to actually sit down and find out the truth. Was this all planned by Moffat and Capaldi or is it just all, you know, was it they took feedback from the fact that there was a lot of criticism about Capaldi's unlikable performance and let's see how they can scramble around it. And I'd be very fascinated to find out, is it, is it Chibber's uh, scrambling or is it his grand plan? If the change was as violent as you describe, you would, would that suggest that it was unplanned and the result of feedback and a request to you know, change direction in a sharpest manner, ma- manner? If it was more you know, an evolution than a revolution, you'd, you'd see a more phased-in approach or phased change to, to proceedings. We are in the era of you know the Star Wars new sequels where they've gone from J.J. Abrams slavishly copying the original to Ryan Johnston throwing out everything and doing a rewrite, really, of what the Star Wars lore is, and then the massive negative feedback causing a complete... Uh, gear shift uh, or you know what's the phrase that everyone uses you know steering the ship back on course with um, Rise of Skywalker so we are in an era where the internet is the most powerful feedback um, whether positive or negative for anything and it's it's affected Doctor Who it's affected Star Wars it's affected all the major franchises really I think it's affected it, it affected Game of Thrones quality it's affected Star Trek as well that internet power uh, has has really shaped you know pop culture over the last you know 15 20 years but is that a testament to the internet's capacity to amplify some loud voices whereas the bulk of the viewing you know audience doesn't really care that they only mm. go to be entertained um, it just seems like on the internet now you can you, you know you can have your YouTube channel or you can have a podcast garner a following it following say a number of outrageous things. And suddenly you're some sort of influence peddler and uh, able to shape, you know, what 
production companies and, and, and businesses you know, do or put out into the marketplace. Yeah. If that's the case, are those self-same production teams and companies, are they cowards? Are they acting in a cowardly manner to give in to, you know, they're confusing the loud voices for, for quantity of, you know, of views or of people? Yeah, quantity of views and the money behind it. It's very much a, the, the business of, of storytelling is uh, being shaped more by the business than opposed to the actual stories that need to be told um mm. and so yeah doctor who is very much a case of that it has become you know since it's rebranding the the driving force behind bbc it's very much you know their 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 flagship their star vehicle and there's a lot of investment behind it i mean you know you guys were of the time where the only merchandise for doctor who was the target novelizations um and now it's the era of you know the the TARDIS tongs, the TARDIS uh, you know Doctor Who bathrobes, the you know the 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 TARDIS oven mitts, multiple different action figures and and pops and all these type of merchandise that is driving the company and driving the money behind it. And so yeah, it's it's more about what the business side is than the story side of sticking true to what your vision is. And so yeah, it should be more a case of it's the way the the way of the world right now. Much you know, in many ways I miss the the glory days of the BBC not really caring and uh, and you know Andrew Cartmel just getting his nerdy friends together and going, let's just put on a show that we really want to do. If the BBC is aiming for a broad audience to support that merchandising push around the world if they're doing that, you know those two press releases that they issued earlier this year in response to uh, fan nonsense on the internet complaints, uh, which I thought was a massive failure of nerve. Well, not a massive failure, but a failure of nerve to actually, you know, go to the get to the point where you feel like you have to justify a creative decision by your production team. Yeah, exactly. That's that's just a, that is just a failure of nerve. And if you're why why are they listening to uh, you know again loud voices from a small minority on the internet? What they they should just rot, you know turn their backs and just ignore it like like BBC upper management used to do in the 70s and 80s, really. It's very much a case of they want to understand the fans, but they don't really, and they're not sure how to really judge it. And it is a massive misstep that they, that in many ways, kowtowed to it. Um, and it seems the decisions that were made by Chibnall were made more to be those big shock reveals, which be, has become a big part of television events right now because, you know, Scripted drama is finding it so hard to keep up with, with you know, the onslaught of free-to-air uh, reality TV. And so all those shows that exist on Netflix and stuff like that, which doesn't have the restrictions of being on, you know, mainstream television, they can do whatever they want. But the big point is how big a shock, how big a surprise, how big a twist can you bring into it? So it seemed to me all these big event moments that happened in season 12 were seen to be more orchestrated than actually uh, a way of approaching the story. Yeah, it's more of a case of trying to keep those people, uh, those mainstream people in, but the more these twists and turns are done more to be orchestrated as opposed to a part of the story, and it's bringing in like deep cuts to to origin and lore about who um, that does push people away. And that was the criticism for a lot of Moffat's era. And it's quite interesting to see how history will judge each of the modern era because you know uh, how they perceive Russell T. Russell T. is used to got get quite a lot of criticism when he was actually showrunner, but now he's being you know he gets 
quite a lot of praise, as he should. He did some incredible stuff on there. He made some missteps, but that's the whole part of creating something creative. You're going to have highs and lows. You know, Moffat got a lot of hate during his time, especially near the end of his era. Um, but now there's a lot of push back towards positivity towards his era, whereas uh, and Chibnall has met nothing but a lot of hostility from all different fights with fandom for different reasons over the course of his uh, tenure. So you want to have someone in there who can stay the course, who can keep their vision true and keep the story going in a fun, enjoyable accessible way and not kowtow to extreme fanatics who are loud on the internet just because they've got nothing mm. to do or um, the, the dollar signs um, hanging over their heads. Do you think that Chibnall has made a fundamental mistake? Well, it, it appears to me that he's made a fundamental mistake in rewriting the, what we understand or what is commonly understood to be the Doctor's background in that, as you said before, there's been this increasing need to go for the big moments, to draw eyeballs, to draw attention. Just like, you know, any drug addict will attest, you know, the more you use, the greater the requirement to get that same feeling, you know, as at the, as at the beginning. Just going for those huge moments that have just feel emptier and emptier. And the second thing is that in rewriting the Doctor's history, this complete focus in that last episode, aren't you excluding all but two percent of the audience who 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 don't give a stuff who who've never watched the deadly assassin who've never watched the brain of morbius who've <laughs> never watched you know anything to do with gallifreyan history i'd love to know what the audience appreciation figures were or the equivalent these days for the show just from the average viewer going what is this yeah why are you subjecting this to me at the end of the season that i've you know i've rewarded you with my loyalty by you know basically sticking with the show and then you've served this up to me it just seems like a strange approach for me the first thing i'd like to say is who would have thought that one of the most powerful and most unanswered questions in doctor who history was about brain of morbius i mean i'm there going really okay that's what you're going to focus on you really want to make you know christopher barry in a wig and a hat a canon doctor all right you want philip hinchcliffe to be canon doctor you want robert hopes to be canon doctor okay i didn't know that was things that keeping the fans up at night i mean i maybe that's a a, a whole deep dive into a facebook group that i'm not aware of for me it is a case of doctor who was a show created by committee there was no one single vision it has never been one single vision there was never a gene rod there was never a, a George Lucas vision of it. You know, it, the show was created uh, in its early days by, you know, Sydney Newman coming in going, I kind of want this. Very Lou Lambert going, well, I'll take that and I'll kind of do this. Warris is saying coming in going, well, I'll kind of do this. Um, uh, the Aussie writer coming in going, well, I'll kind of do this. And, and Hartnell going, well, I'll kind of do that. And so it was created that way. And then all the production team left and then other people come in and go, well, it's kind of this, it's kind of that, and I'll do this and do that. And then, you know, Innes Lloyd, God bless him, comes in and goes, all right, well, we'll do this and we'll do that and we'll get rid of Hartnell and we'll bring in Trout and we'll do this and do that. And then Derek Sherwood does his thing and then Barry Letts. And so it's always, it's constantly changing. And so I know it's been a massive task and joy or frustration for fans for decades to try and restrict this multi opinionated created monster into one single canon and for many it's a joy and it's become in many ways a hindrance to a lot of fans because it's become they've created this continuity they've invested their time their effort their heart and soul into this continuity that is really kind of just made up really because it's a show that's created as it's made up so but there's always that true essence of the show. It's the mystery of someone that we don't really know 
all about them and that's a joy of it and it's also this case of how quaintly unique it is there is no mission statement a random person traveling through time and space with random people he's not he's not a, a military man going on a, a, a set up by the government or all this type of stuff it's this quaint unique very british very 60s broad sweeping template that you can go anywhere and that's why it's lasted this long it could be educational it could be b-grade horror monster sci-fi it could be the avengers mixed with bond it could be gothic horror it could be all these different genres and so then with a scriptwriter coming in who grew up on the show and has been influenced by so many other genres and styles and seen so much of how sci-fi can be told to come in and reshape the show, retool the show, repurpose the show in a way that is so generic and so bland and so been done before. Who was shaped in the past by by Quatermass, by... Um, by by the Avengers, by James Bond, by the works of Mary Shelley, by the works of Arthur Conan Doyle, by all, you know, with Shakespeare, all these type of great writers. And now it's at the point where who is being influenced by sci-fi that's already been done before. And it and it cheapens for me. That's what it cheapened for me. So I'm just there going, so now the doctor is an immortal from a parallel dimension. I've seen that in 150 million other sci-fi stories all right and she was also used by a secret government agency to travel through time and then have her mind wipe that's been done 150 million times by other sci-fi writers before oh and that's right doctor who did it before with jack harkness it's been done before what we love about doctor who is we come in and it's something that we've never seen before We've never seen anything. They've taken influences from other things, but it's only unique self. So then to, for me to have it shaped in a way that is so bland and so boring and so dull and so generic, it really breaks my heart. And especially tying it to, to such specific Doctor Who canon, yeah, canon I say with inverted commas, is... Is, is incredibly alienating for, for fans who don't know what's going on. I had to spend about half an hour to 40 minutes explaining to my wife what it all means about the Timeless Children. And just especially the way that our lead character has been treated in this season is, is really disheartening. To have the entire final episode of a season have our lead character knocked out talked to and taken away all their power is disheartening is is incredibly heartbreaking to have that you know a character who could rewrite history change courses throw overthrow governments has said either you have to destroy gallifrey for a third time or let this random guy come in and do it for you um they're going well the doctor would always be able to find the third option the doctor would never accept just one or the other instead of expanding it they've they've taken away so much from who and that's what's really broken my heart is that it's it's lost a lot but the one thing i keep on holding on to is the fact that the doctor's half human remember that oh that's right mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the great thing about who it is whoever picks it up can do whatever they want and chibnall's doing this more to bait he's doing big loud movements but it signifies nothing that's the real tragedy of it isn't it yeah it's effectively like it's the commodification or the you know the, the turning of Doctor Who into a brand. I mean, I've often lamented. I mean, you know, during the eighties, you, you there was no such thing as you know 
well, there were, but not as much as today. They're big brands, you know, businesses were big brands and that sort of thing and everything, all sorts of diversity. You, you lost that in your, you know, in your experience in life. There was no longer the shops down the street or anything like that. Nowadays, you, you, you go to a big box warehouse to purchase your stuff. Yeah. And it feels like the Doctor Who which, as you say, was effectively created on the run. I've just got this image in my head of a group of people assembling a vehicle as it goes down the road bit by bit, and that's Doctor Who in my mind. It's going down a road and people coming out of their house, adding a part, and then going back in. So you've got Correct. people jumping onto, onto the car, adding parts, then jumping off, people just walking on, adding a part, going away. And it's just that's what we love about it. We love the mm. mess of it. We love the hodgepodge nature of it and the fact you can't define it and refine it and put it in a single mm. box. And now it feels enormously bland. And as you were saying before, it, this latest approach seems to be taking from what other science fiction writing or television or movies has done before. Is it just making Doctor Who safe so that, you know, it's a brand that you can put in front of an audience, they'll lap it up for 45 minutes and then move on, not feeling particularly challenged or, or, or anything as long as they've had their minds diverted, you know, for that three quarters of an hour? Yeah, I mean, for me, what I, I actually, a lot of fans didn't like it, but I think Chibnall made some bold moves that were true to the character last season with stuff like Rosa, stuff like Demons of the Punjab, where it was, there was, you know, there's no big flashy monsters. There was no, it was in many ways for me, it was like taking elements of Quantum Leap. It was like the human stories of history. And so to have that, was was I actually quite like that. I like that shift and I like that change. But yeah, if you get too tied to the canon, it, it, it draws people away. Would the series have been better when it came back to basically put the line in the sand and say, we're going to ignore the previous how many years it was and we're going to build our own mythology? That's what Russell T Davies effectively did. He wiped everything out. The Time War killed everything off. Hmm. It was just the, the Doctor and the TARDIS, a man travelling through time and space, and there was you know, virtually none of that, meant, no, no talk of regeneration. I mean, you compare Rose to the 1996 TV movie where it oh settles God, itself yeah. with... It, it, if you don't yeah. know what regeneration is, if you don't know what the, who the Master is, if you don't know what the Daleks are, then you are stuffed in terms of understanding mm. what's happening in the TV movie. That's why season one is still you know, the strongest of all the modern seasons. It's just... Russell T has openly said he he'd never done none of them had done anything that big before they'd never done that many episodes in one year they had never worked with that amount of money they had never that much attention focused on them and but to still have us he knew exactly how he clearly wanted to tell the story of how he wanted to drop these little reveals you know it's not till the end of episode two that we find out that there was a war and that everyone's lost we didn't find out that this war was with the daleks till episode six we don't find out all these little bits it's a beautiful pace and that's what we love about who we love you know it's about what they hold back as opposed to what they reveal Mm. and it's hard to explain that to a modern audience of mainstream people who like who grow who have now become accustomed to Game of Thrones, where it's all about have you have you heard about this big moment where it's revealed that all you know is it the Red Wedding, is it that battle here, is it this character dying, this character revealing their true essence? Where Doctor Who is not about those big moments. It's just about, you know, an idiot in a blue box going along and doing stuff. It's hard to find that balance of trying to fit an old school show into a modern structure. And especially 
modern television has changed so much, even since Russell T came on the air. Russell T was shaped a lot by how he structured a season like Buffy and Joss Whedon's TV shows. But now event television has, and Netflix and streaming services have changed the shape of it again. And it seems that Chibbers is trying to keep up and the BBC are trying to keep up with that. And it goes against what the essence of who is. It's not about how much you show, it's about how little you show. And that's why who works so well is the the less you show, the better. There's interesting parallels between what's just happened in this last series with what's happened the last maybe 10 or 15 years with Star Trek, where you had the films pretty much rewriting canon. Yeah. And then you've got obviously Discovery, which is rewriting bits of the old series as well. I'm actually okay with that because I'm not a fully fledged invested into Star Trek. I watch it, I enjoy it, and I move on quite quickly and I go, actually, this isn't bad. And now I can sort of understand there's some Trekkies getting slightly annoyed with what was been going on the last few years. So in terms of parallels between Trek and Who, at the moment, they're quite similar. And I think, you know, as you said, the internet is playing. And when we say the internet, is it just five or ten people on Twitter just getting angry? The decisions made or the choices made this season has definitely rocked all of fandom. It hasn't just rocked the the, the, the loud minority. All of all of who fandom has been rocked by what season 12, 12 has done. So, but not in a positive way. So it's a case of, you know, there hasn't been such a, a seismic uh, effect on the, on, 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 on the who community um, in quite a long time, not since, you know, because it wasn't really a who community back when the first regeneration happened, which would have been one of the most important moments in who history. But now that we have, a culture we have a support base we have a fandom we have appreciation societies and and you know victorian doctor who clubs um it's now a case of this is something that has shifted all of us and we are all talking about it and we all have an opinion about it and we have all coming away from it in some way shape or form so and a lot of going well that's good that's that's good storytelling i'm going no no it's loud storytelling and it, it hasn't for me, it hasn't been a good shift and it hasn't been, it, it's not happening for the right reasons. Now, Rob, you approach your concerns with, you know, the last series based on storytelling approach and what you think is the right way for Doctor Who to tell a story or the more effective way. But you can see that people also have a, a, an extremely negative view to Chibnall and his era and, you know, this last series. Do you think, though, that their reaction, the violence of their reaction, the verbal violence of their reaction, is partly down to the fact that a woman was cast in the role? Do you think that there is a, a misogynistic streak to um, to the attacks and, you know, they'll use any stick to beat Chibnall with? And this is just, you know, the, 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 what happened in the last story is just another stick for them to pick up and go crazy with. Yeah, I mean, there are those people who were speaking loudly against Whitaker's casting and they haven't really changed their opinion. And I was quite surprised, and maybe it's my own inbuilt sexism that I'm still working on, I was surprised that it wasn't just male fandom that was upset by it, it was some female fandom as well that got quite disappointed. There's quite a lot of Doctor Who fans who identify as women got in touch with me and said, no, for me, this is the doctor. The doctor is, you know, always seen as a male. And like I've had fans say they connected the doctor with their father or their uncle or someone, a, a, a strong, important male figure in their life. And that's why they tie to it. So that's a sense of losing 
for them, they feel as if they've lost that, which is it, it, which I don't fully understand, but I don't have that emotional bond to what the Doctor means to them from their personal connection. And we each have our own connections in some way, shape, or form. But that that violent, aggressive, unreasonable, um, hurtful, misogynistic um, bile that it was spewed forth after Whitaker's announcement has always been there, and they've always always been in in a sense sitting back and waiting for any excuse to complain and haven't really given it the chance it deserved but yeah there's all those 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 fans this is what we're talking about those fans willing to accept change those fans not willing to accept change and those fans what how they understand the show and how they take on the show so in a world where changes are constant are we saying that those people who are really upset with the casting of Whitaker? and the general direction of the last couple of years of Doctor Who, are we saying that they can cope with the real world, but it's it's the... Well, while they're trying to cope with the real world, they rely on their fantasy world, you know, television or their entertainment, to provide them the stability that they don't have in their real lives? That's what perceiving it, definitely. It's the way of... We have so little control of our lives, especially the last three months have shown with us being in lockdown. Mm. We have so little control of where we can go what we can do and we are our our fate is in the hands of other people and so we gain control of whatever semblance of control we can have and whether that be in you know positive or negative ways how we take that opportunity and a lot of it a lot of that negative fandom take control of this show of what it means to them emotionally and it connects so deeply to them that none of us would really fully understand we can appreciate what certain shows mean to us individually and that's why a fandom comes in to talk and discuss ideas and this is where we argue and complain but we find common ground but those individual connections to a show and what that means to you is a very powerful thing and if you lose that power in your own life you have a sense that, that you have that power nowhere else and you, so you latch onto it harder than you normally would. And that's why what I love discussing about Who is, you know, the reason I find Who so important to me is completely different to, to you, Rob, or you, Mark, but we find common ground and I'm fascinated to find out why we individually love this show and from, from what individual story to get to that point comes from I, I want to give two personal anecdotes that i think come at this sort of from slightly different directions uh, we're, what we're really talking about i suppose is is people the power of nostalgia for people to to give them comfort to give them a bit of hope to give them that stability i've from the very beginning of this podcast i've always said that my very first memory of doctor who was back in 1975 when i watched uh, episode one of the Time Warrior, and it was the reveal of Lynx's face that sent me running out of the house in blind terror yeah. into my father's arms. But I went to broadcast, and I looked up the the screening dates in in Australia for um, for the Time Warrior, and I, I discovered that I'd never actually seen it in 1975. I did see it in 1977, and as it turns out, on my father's birthday. Uh, because I know that my father and his brother and his his dad, my grandfather, were at at my parents' place, and it must have been for my dad's birthday. Yeah. So to so to discover that you know, uh, forty three years ago, um, coming up now actually forty three years ago that you know Doctor Who's that that first strong memory coincided with my dad's birthday. Mm. That really actually moved me. That that touched me a lot, and I was a bit surprised in my reaction. Um, so that's a positive memory in a sense. But the other thing in regards to nostalgia, this week I, I found my old high school's 
uh, Facebook page. And the more I, <laughs> there was a mistake to do this. The more I looked at it, and the more I came across, you know, people's names and whatever, the more, the more you sort of get that sort of bittersweet yearning, which is what really nostalgia is, I suppose. And so the more I felt that, the more depressed I felt, actually. And I just I just had to run away. I had to click out of it and not do it. So nostalgia has that two edge. It's, it's you know two two sides to a coin. It's a, it's a two edged sword. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a funny thing that people look for stability in a show that represents a bygone era in their lives, perhaps. Yeah, I mean uh, Rod Serling, uh, the creator of the Twilight Zone, one of the you know greatest writers of the last. 50 60 years was incredible in his insight even back when he was doing the twilight zone in the 50s or even longer than 50 60 70 years that he explored stories of the dangers of nostalgia and what we remember to misquote uh jnt you know the memory does cheat sometimes and there is that danger of looking back at that time and those certain instinctive emotional you know gut feelings that you get a smell uh sends you back you know 30 40 years 20 years or whatever but there's a case of not being able to actually observe that time from from a from a logical point of view and you know looking at the reality of the, the positives and the negatives and all that type of stuff is just time going along and we don't want to immortalize it or mythologize it like they do movies the 80s wasn't uh, stranger things we wish it was stranger things but yeah. only the yeah, music exactly. was stranger things <laughs> and and maybe the arcade uh, you know, playing pac-man and things like that but so look at the end of the day nostalgia is very powerful and also at the moment very profitable yes look i mean the thing is a doctor who we've all spent a lot of time thinking about it and investing a lot of time in our life about it and i think uh, when it comes to a size and our money and our money as well and it's, it's a seismic shift like what's happened with the uh, the timeless children definitely uh, upset a lot of people and that i suppose that brittle peace between the old fans and the new fans has definitely i think broken but then again i'm only looking at a vacuum called twitter <laughs> that's it where i'm gauging fan opinion and it's very easy to put an opinion out and just go bang 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 and send it off and it's a bit of a pile on isn't it really i watched the timeless children when I was in Adelaide, I was there um, doing the uh, Adelaide Fringe Festival just before everything shut down. And so I sat there watching it on my laptop with Caitlin and one of our uh, ensemble members of Improvised Harry Potter. Uh, and he was a, he's a, a new fan. He's only been into it recently. And so he adds who onto the list of all the sci-fi equivalent shows that, that he watches. So it was interesting to sit down and watch it. So when these big reveals are being done in in the timeless children i'm reacting to it in such a big way because i know all this history and he was watching it from a point of view of um just someone who's like a passing interest kind of like what you were talking about rob with the you know that mainstream audience he's like a big sci-fi nerd and loves all that type of stuff but it's one of many shows that he watches um and so at the end of it i'm there in my head going they've ruined this they've destroyed that if he's tried to do this but he's made it boring and all that bland and i turn to petra and goes yeah and that's exactly for me what i was looking at it i'm getting shocked because these big loud moves are just so generic and bland and so i turned to the person who's watching all these other shows and he didn't have that visceral reaction Mm. he just went yeah 
because it was bland and not interesting and just go, yeah, yeah, he said, I'll probably think about it and I'll be okay with it and just move on to the next thing as opposed to those moments where you want it to stay and simmer and last and, you know, go, what does, you know, what does this all mean? So it's become exactly, it's become disposable and it's become, you know, added to the list of, all the other things that you can skip on by watching Stan or Netflix or Disney Plus or whatever. Is the damage done in terms of the series going forward? If they retcon it, though... That's why I said the Doctor's, the Doctor's half-human. Yeah. Doctor Who is nothing but a big, massive retcon. Everything will be retcon. Everything will be changed, shifted. It'll be forgotten. It, you know, it, They'll get someone new in and they'll swap around. It'll be go on, on the H word. It'll go on a hiatus for a little bit. I'll take a break. It'll reform. It'll reshape. Um, because even how we view television has changed. Um, even since Who came back in 2005, now everyone binge watches. Everything's all live stream. So BBC has to shift that. Most of the viewing now of Who is on uh, iPlayer um, and how how we consume Doctor Who uh, has to change with the time. Now watch all our shows on streaming services as opposed to event television of people sitting around and waiting for it to happen, you know, once a week. It will come back. It will shift. Doctor Who is, you know, you know we've all survived the, the, the dark times. Where, you know, we had a 40th birthday where, where nothing happened. The only thing we had happen on the 40th birthday of Doctor Who is they released a couple of DVDs with a different font. <laughs> and a slipcase as well. <laughs> well. How can we forget the slipcases, okay? They're worth a lot of money now, actually. <laughs> we have the 10th anniversary where we had the three Doctors. Mm. The 20th anniversary, we had the five Doctors, which was J&T's crowning achievement, and he should have left after that. Yep. The 30th anniversary, <laughs> we had Dimensions in Time in 3D with um, EastEnders stars. Mm. The 40th, we had... You know, slip covers and a new font for the 40th birthday. And the 50th we had, actually, remember, it was disappointing. We expected a whole 13, new 13 episodes. We got the seven-episode end of the previous year's season. We got Paul McGann peering up for seven minutes doing a kick-ass job. We had Day of the Doctor in the cinemas. And then we had a disappointing concluding a season's worth of continuity into uh, one final goodbye for Matt Smith. So it's a case of it will survive. Whether we have everything here for the 60th, we may not, but it will come back, it will evolve, it will change, and it will survive. And this will be just a blip. I wasn't around during Doctor in Distress, and I didn't get to send out my SOS. We can do it now. (laughs) So, you know... There was a time where people thought that there was no way who could recover after that. And we got three more years with Sylvester. Then we thought we'd get no Doctor Who at all. And then we got Paul McGann. Then we thought we'd get no Who again. And then we got Scream of the Shulker. And then after that, we got, you know, Christopher Eccleston. And we got the explosion that we've had for the last, uh, you know, 15 years. You know, haven't been into the show as long as you guys, but I've been just as passionate in the shorter amount of time. And I know the show is durable and hardy. It has changed through so much, through so much in gender politics, sexual identity, gender identity, multiculturalism, uh, science discoveries, racism, all this type of stuff has shifted in the 57 years of Doctor Who existence and it will endure and carry on. The show has been able to adapt to whatever is most popular at the time and it will come back. And so that, and especially if it's a, 
a big, loud, ordinary gesture from a from a scriptwriter is not going to be the death knell of Who. It's a disappointing uh, move from someone who could have done anything and uh, just went, okay, this is my big card. This is what I'm playing. Everything else that's been done before in the last hundred years of science fiction. Eh? And go, well, okay, who is more than the lead actor? Who is more than the scriptwriter? This series, we saw the insertion of another new doctor. Have they got a name for her now? They're calling her the Ruth Doctor because oh, okay. they don't want to call her. They don't want to call her Doctor Ruth because that's a whole other thing for people who were around in the nineties. So, <laughs> uh, if you remember, if you remember Doctor yeah. Ruth, that's a very specific. Yeah, yeah. She did guest appear in an episode of Quantum Leap season five, so something for people to remember. Oh, there. there you go. So they inserted this another new Doctor hmm. left on the uh, on the side of the road, wasn't it? Really, it was very quickly left on the side of the road and they just carried on adventuring and then it was all finalized and given some sort of shape within um uh the timeless children so there was a lot of unanswered questions and then they answered all the questions so that's the biggest mistake in doctor who you never want to have and that's why in many ways i like the fact that we never got the the cartmore master plan fully realized i much prefer the fact you go doctor who are you and you know Sylvester just puts up his finger and goes, shh, as opposed to going, well, actually, you know, there are three powerful Time Lords and he's the other, and this is what it means. That approach worked when it was the new adventures and it was fans writing for fans <laughs> and fans talking to fans, but uh, it doesn't work now. Fans could, talking to fans and go, oh, let's have Ace have sex and let's have Ace swear and, yeah, we'll do all this type of stuff and, we, and we'll do all this crazy stuff and, and you know, Mark Gatiss can write for it and Paul Cornell can get his big break there and, and, and you know, and, and Russell T can do a story, yeah, talk Oh, great it's all just for us it's all just for our small little pocket of a couple of hundred of us <laughs> it's for the youth of today yeah yes yeah so it's all been explained so during a time the doctor was used as a puppet and a tool no mention of the celestial intervention uh, agency or no no yeah. mention of Rassilon at all someone who prides himself on knowing all about canon he was quite clumsy in the things that he omitted from that is so clearly there um, and so there was a time when the Doctor was just used as this weapon by this secret agency, the department, or something as generic and bland as that, to go out on missions, traveling through time and space, interfering with time, even though Time Lord doesn't do that. And so I'm there. That's not interesting for me. And so that's a time when memories was wiped to constant regenerations. And it seems like Ruth's Doctor fits in near the tail end of that time before the Doctor somehow broke free turned into Hartnell and ran away oh my god when you have it described like that it, it just this <laughs> incessant need to have your characters to be you know the most important thing in the universe um it, it is does really blend it up it it, it 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 just takes so much away doesn't it yeah i mean it, it didn't it never really sat with me that well that whole meta retconning really with what um Russell T loved doing and Moffat started it and then he stepped back on it which was the whole the lonely god on the oncoming storm and so the doctor it became Russell T Davis commenting on the doctor in the tv show of how the doctor was for him as a fan and what we fans the you know the reverence we had for it they put that reverence into the show and so it made the doctor more than just a guy who just shows up randomly and no one really understanding him he became this he became his own mythology, really, within the show, and I never sat well with that. And then Moffat did a massive 180 on that 
after uh, Capaldi's first year, he went, no, let's just take that away. Let's just make him a guy who just travels randomly to get back to that essence of what, you know, it was very much a case of um, the Tom Baker era. And they changed it in the 80s. He became, you know, Lord President for some reason, but gave it to Flavia and all that type of stuff. We just, it's all adding on. But it became this case of, yeah, the Doctor's the most important person in the world or Clara's the most important person in the universe or this mm-hmm. thing is the most important person or, yeah, it's a case of trust the essence of the show that's been surviving nearly 60 years you don't need to do more you have everything that you've got all the tools you need you don't need to bring anything else in but you know uh, i have no power no say and no money and uh no influence so uh i can say you know i'm in a, a prime position of being able to look at it from the outside and go but you've got it all there you don't need to do anything else with it and anything else you bring into it just makes it like every other show as opposed to what made it so unique and even me explaining it to you now like you said you just went it just sounds like every other sci-fi show my eyes just rolled over my head when you explained the whole thing about the (laughs) doctor it's like really okay so are we saying then if the change to canon is done well we'll be more happy to accept it and when we say done well, where it doesn't really, I suppose, uh, throw everything out and the baby in the bathwater. But as fans, are we more likely to embrace changes to canon when actually it sort of makes sense to us and, and what we think about the show as opposed to what's happened with the with the, the last episode of Series 12 where, you know, and there could have been four people who did like it. <laughs> I'm yet to meet them. I was hoping maybe you were one of them tonight, but that's failed miserably. Terribly sorry to, to not pick up my chair and move to the other side of the court. I'm keeping my chair in the court with you two guys. So The timeless child depletes mystery of Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> Andrew Cartmel said that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So he wasn't a fan either. No, and that, and that's a bold move coming from someone who, who embraced a whole shape of and giving some answers to who as well. And then, you know, mm. like, uh, maybe that wasn't the best move. But Cartmel's a, a wonderful influence and in what he brought to the show was, you know, should be listened to. The mystery is why the show works. And same thing with stuff like The X-Files as well, to a lesser extent. The X-Files was very much about the mystery is still out there. And as soon as they went on for too long, they gave too many answers or they spent too long trying to avoid giving the answer and it eats itself moffat spent too much time going we'll tell you that you know who's the name of the doctor what's the name of the doctor all those fan things that have been hanging over and it's it's not the point and it loses the flavor and the spark and the magic of it and then you have clara going through the timeline saving him at key points in his lives and they go what's why it just i don't know from a storytelling point of view does it really make a difference uh, does it yeah. matter just just tell a story you don't have to have this stuff over it you know what i mean exactly and moffat was very good at going this is very important now and this is the crucial part now and then you you get embraced in it and then as soon as it's finished it's like a one night stand you wake up and you go hang on what happened just here what where they go i don't have the number i don't have their contact did that actually happen well the video on youtube definitely did prove it did happen son <laughs> <laughs> um, exactly. Most people have forgotten about it. It has moved. It, it happened, but it's it hasn't made any lasting impact because the show will power through no matter what. I sometimes wonder whether Chibnall understands that fact that you know the show constantly changes itself or rewrites itself, and felt empowered by that to go with a big big bang option like this, realizing that any successor will come along and either studiously ignore it 
or themselves fall into the same trap and come up with something bigger. And that's the risk that this sort of approach mm-hmm. entails. The, the, the bigger you go, the next person may feel impelled to go bigger still. Um, and that, as you're saying, I mean, what, what, what is Doctor Who meant to do? It's meant to entertain. It's not meant to colour in every single, you know, blank spot in, in, in the Doctor's personal history. I, no, no one really mm. cares about that. Really, do they? They don't come to watch Doctor Who and understand every little nuance and in and out of the Doctor's backstory. I mean, that's probably the most boring aspect of it, unless it's tied to a really interesting exactly. story. The fact that the Doctor appears to have been a child captured by some strange person who then experimented on uh, them for extended period of time is is really very clumsy. Or it's just, you know, ham-fisted storytelling. Very time. much so, because, it's it, again, it's that case of, you know, it's that creative imposter complex of going, I'm here now, I've got this important role, and I've got this history behind it, I've got to make an impression. It's the same thing that Ryan Johnson did with uh, with Last Jedi, which I, I don't like at all. He got into this position and he wanted to he wanted to take control of it on his terms, as opposed to respecting or you know taking on board what has been created before. For every Ryan Johnson who kind of just came in and threw all the toys away and go, these are my new toys, um, there's someone like Dave Filoni in Star Wars who listens to George Lucas and goes, okay, this is what I have to play with, and he makes it work. And that's why Clone Wars has been you know, an amazing addition to the series. Uh, Rebels is absolutely incredible, and The Mandalorian is a masterpiece, in my opinion. And that's why when you, you take on board and play with the tools you have as opposed to getting so self-conscious of your own creativity and your own worth that you want to stamp it with your own, um, you know, your own style, your own storytelling, and you're just, you know, regurgitating genre plots, story plots that have been done a million times beforehand, especially in sci-fi. That's the main problem with season 12. It is, it's turned Doctor Who into generic science fiction that could be, that could be seen in Dollhouse. It could be seen in lesser spin-off seasons of Star Trek or uh, lesser versions of Battlestar Galactica. It's like, it's nothing new. It's like a a bad episode of the eighties Twilight Zone or the Outer Limits, as opposed to what made the show unique. It's, you know, play with what you have. You don't need anything else. Everything you have is right in front of you. I always thought the Morbius doctors were Morbius. Yeah. Because then he blows up at the end. Or how many years later he goes around and says, oh no, it's all part of the doctors. Like, who cares? Who yeah. absolutely cares? But the, the, the danger is, it's like, um, I know you sort of don't like Last Jedi. And then you've got the, um, you've got the, the, the course correction then to, uh, towards the fan-pleasing Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. Which I didn't think was particularly good either, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah, but that was a story that had to spend a whole lot of runtime fixing the perceived problems with The Last Jedi. Yeah. And also dealing with the gaping hole of the fact we, you know, lost Wade. Carrie Fisher. But it's also a case of you you cannot help but notice that despite all the negativity about the prequels, it had a clear vision. They knew exactly what they wanted to say, what story they wanted to tell. They knew what beats they wanted to hit in their three stories. They weren't executed incredibly well, um, mm. but it was clear and direct. And now better people, better, more creative people have been able to take elements of it and tell fascinating stories. But with, with the new sequels, there was no direction. They had no idea. That's amazing, isn't it? When you think about it, that is, that's stunning. With a, a multi-billion dollar uh, movie 
I hate using the word, but franchise is the word you have to you sort of reach for, where there was no overarching uh, guidance or person in charge, you know, offering or giving direction. And instead you had three different, well, two or three different creators with different visions pulling in, in, in multiple yeah. directions. The whole series, unfortunately, felt very unsatisfying yeah, to same, me. Yeah, same, yeah. George Lucas, when he about to sell the rights to, to Disney, he said, well, look, this is where I see the next three uh, films going and they basically said thanks but no thanks yeah came in with a with a, a a three movie pitch really he had an arc and go this is where you can go in the three in the three films this is where i see it going and they went thank you they brought in larry kazdan and his son and lawrence lawrence kazdan was great with uh, uh empire, empire and star wars yeah jedi jj came and said i'll just do one i'll get to a point and they just pretty much said whatever you do in each they kind of wanted it, it for me it seemed a bit like they said look we're going to get this money anyway we'll find it as we go along and so then we have big radical shifts so the big crucial moment at the end of force awakens is the lightsaber being handed back to luke and then you bring in someone completely different who's not there to guide it through so that you have a, a moment where as soon as the lightsaber is taken it's thrown away but then in the next one you have the lightsaber caught by Luke, and he says, I shouldn't have done that. So it's this case of all these different opinions as opposed to just have one, keep it focused, and go along with it. And, <laughs> and, and the fans that's noticed right. it, and that's why ticket sales were were down from from uh, Last Jedi to Rise of the Skywalker. It was shown. The fans didn't like it. The critics didn't like it. Nobody came out to saw it, see it as much. It made you know lots of money, but nowhere near as much as previous ones because everyone's going, oh, is it fatigue or is it... You know, there was some horrible trolling online and all that type of stuff, and that shouldn't be in any fandom whatsoever. But the fundamental truth is there was no... It's all about storytelling, and the story wasn't told well over three films. It wasn't. It couldn't have been told well over one film, and that's the, the problem with Who as well. It's that case of if the story isn't told well, there's, you know, no matter how much money you have behind it, they had no money in Doctor Who in the 60s and they were able to tell some cracker stories so it's not about the money it's about the story you tell and here's the problem also with that Star Wars Empire Return of the Jedi much loved revered same with to a point with Classic Who there's always going to be that comparison between the old and the new in most cases the new loses out mm -hmm. because it's just seen as a pale imitation yeah and it's trying to find that balance of tipping your hat to the past but creating your own identity but also mm. having an air of nostalgia but not being a slave to it it's it's a difficult line to to balance out and so and especially because who and star wars is so ingrained in in our culture and about our imagination and and birth of creativity and childhood and stuff like that stuff like james bond doesn't need to real do with that it can kind of just go on their essence of it that you need to keep but it's more tied to grown-ups and their perception of it so that's not so emotionally attached for you a lot of us got into bond when we were kids but it was always directed towards adults it's very similar to what's happening with discovery where some people love it some people don't like it yeah where picard has been fairly uh, generously um accepted and, and reviewed and everything like that and is that because the picard show sort of is a bit more respectful to its canon picard's a weird thing it, it's embraced this darkness of 
sci-fi, which has become, or, or, or genre television, which has become the expectation now with stuff like Game of Thrones and all that type of stuff. So there is more of a darker storytelling element to it. And that was very much embraced in the reboot with Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto. But for me, it was a great refreshment because as soon as Voyager uh, finished, we haven't had anything in the that future futures timeline. We've all gone back. We, so Enterprise went back in time. The reboot went back in time. Discovery went back in time. Um, mm. With Picard, it was able to take elements of the reboot, which was the destruction of Romulus, and then show the effects of that uh, in our prime timeline. But I think the most successful episodes of it were when it was those touches to the past. So when you have... Deanna Troy and uh, Riker show up again. Yeah. And yeah. those connections, the, those warm, familiar uh, connections with it. Um, and especially because just some of the new characters weren't that interesting. Having Jerry Ryan there because she's just a superstar. And Seven of Nine is an incredible creation. And what she's done for that uh, character is wonderful to see. But, um, but it kind of petered off at the end for me. There's some really positive things in there. Um, but then there was some just quite standard stuff and i never and i've never been able to cope with swearing in star trek it's really weird bit forced isn't it really yeah yeah it is very mm. forced it's connected but picard in many ways is connected to all has tried to connect to all of the star trek mythology whereas um discovery has been quite focused in about what type of mythology it wants to use but it wants to tell its own individual story Whereas yeah. because it is connected to a much loved show, next gen, and a figure who is who was used as a, and in many ways, I've been fascinated finding out about this because I've gone back to watch the classics. You know, the reason next gen came about was because Paramount was getting annoyed because uh, Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner were costing too much money. The Star Trek films were making the money, but they were giving too much to those two actors that were getting a couple of million dollars each movie. So they said, look, we can make so much more out of this franchise if we just keep it going, but without the big names. Hence, Next Generation was created so they can get a complete bunch of unknowns and the brand of Star Trek will keep it going. But as a result, you know, uh, because Patrick Stewart's such an incredible actor, he was able to create this iconic captain who is equal in popularity to 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 Captain Kirk, to Kirk. So, yeah, so yeah. He can have his own spinoff now, and that ties an expectation to how that character is, how he's held, what type of stories you can tell, and what tone to the show you can have, and so it's not as hardcore trying to be meta and modern and new uh, and relevant as discovery is it can have elements of that but it can also still tie itself to that fundamental essence of picard and the next gen series which was so revolutionary in the late 80s and early 90s and how it reinvented this this saga i remember when the next gen uh, first started i remember going to some doctor who club meetings and the local uh, star trek club oztrek uh, some people were there, and they hated Next Gen. Mm. They absolutely hated it because what's the point? Don't bother, you know, going uh, against the classic series; it can never be uh, beaten. And now, even with Discovery, uh, it's the same argument. I don't like it because they're not wearing the right costumes, or why have they got that drive and it wasn't invented? In there's that reluctance to it to even watch a show because it doesn't, uh, I suppose, figure in what they think about continuity mm. and and canon. Very much so, and but and very much 
Trek prided itself on a particular tone of optimism and a certain mentality. Even, you know, Gene Roddenberry didn't like uh, the tone that Nicholas Meyer brought to Star Trek II. He thought it was too violent and too wartime, and he never saw you know, them as soldiers, he saw them as, you know, ambassadors, really. Um, and so that conflict was going on in the 80s as well. And so it's amazing with something like Who, the continuity, always going to be a bone of contention because there is no consistent you know, linear form of that continuity. And also the genre of it as well has shifted every decade, you know, sometimes three or four times within one decade. So it's not tied to that one decade. It absorbs a, a genre to fit the the story that it's telling whereas trek and star wars is very much confined by the tone that you take it in so after that chat let's uh have a read of uh, what some of our listeners have contributed to this debate You've got mail. So the first one is from at D16Dude. He says, can you imagine DC suddenly deciding Superman really wasn't from Krypton or Batman's parents weren't shot but had faked their deaths? Even if DC did 20 years worth of uh, stories based on that in canon, the fan base would reject it. Why? It's just as idiotic, harebrained thing to do. I think with comics... There's such a propensity to retcon everything periodically that a lot of fans have reached the point um, where they simply shrug their shoulders knowing that somewhere down the track their preferred version of a storyline or a character will be you know will, will come back there's there's you know there's with dc comics i mean ever since i started working in, in, in comics in the mid 90s there's been at least two or three universal resets um uh, it look it, it appears to be a constant feature with 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 comics whether that it should be a, a constant feature with you know doctor who or, or tv productions in general i'm not entirely sure but um there, certainly comics have an inbuilt uh you know ability to cope with that sort of change yeah and they've got that whole they they can reinvent themselves with you know alternate timelines or like elseworlds in dc where they go that alternate world where this could happen or that can happen whereas um yeah they can they can go down a whole other rabbit holes of of alternate continuity and and they do you know reinventions of continuity whether it's infinite crisis whether it's um the new 52 um they just constantly evolve and no characters really die and no characters really you know are gone they will always come back um no matter how crucial and important it is as soon as they brought back jason todd i went well no character can ever die ever again in- that's right <laughs> i think even in um the in soup in spider-man like they brought back peter parker's parents for some reason but there was some sort of weird clone or whatever but it's a case of nothing's sacred you know there's got to you know martha and thomas wayne are off on the cayman island somewhere on a beach going <laughs> we dodged a bullet with that kid <laughs> It's the equivalent of, uh, oh, my God, you'd kill Kenny, and he's back next episode. Exactly. I mean, the great thing about one of the few good things of uh, the a massive amount of stuff that Big Finish has done, their Unbound series was really great, where they could explore, you know, standalone alternate versions of Doctor stories. So you get beautiful mm. stories that are only specifically for this one-off thing, and that would be great to explore a bit more, taking the essence of the Doctor and going off in a timeline, alternate timeline, as opposed to tying it specifically to that main canon. And the main linear of canon, as it were. 
Yeah, exactly. The next tweet we have is from uh, Jed Sweeney, Khan the Catters. Uh, he says, My first thoughts of the timeless child is that it's a bunch of hairy gonads that flies in the face of plenty of previous canon. I do wonder if this is going to be explored further or will it be cast to the same dustbin as the Power Ranger Daleks? He also makes a comment, then there's the apparent revisionism of Deadly Assassin and its portrayal of the Time Lord. It's amazing what the passage of time will do to the fan perception of a story because we all know at the time uh, Deadly Assassin wasn't universally loved like it is now. Mm. That's an example of an organic, uh, well a change that was incidental to the story really um, but it also it worked within that story it, you know it was an organic change instead of a wholesale change imposed from above yeah and when we say that story wasn't universally loved it was this one bad review from Jan Vincent Rudinsky <laughs> slagging it off so actually there could have been thousands of people or millions of people at home watching it loving it and because of that one negative review there's this perception oh everybody hated it when actually no, it's just one person didn't really like it. And he probably likes it now. Given the, the last episode of the War Games got five and a half million, and uh, uh, Deadly Assassin I think got about ten or eleven or twelve million, there are at least six or seven million people who'd never seen the, the War Games and didn't give a toss. So, and that's the main thing. You know, it was always a disposable show. You couldn't re- you couldn't tape record it. So, mm. this was a show that things were just thrown out and disposable. And then this canon came about from those fanatical fans who had to work hard to find the stories and find the recordings and work together to to construct this canon amongst themselves. And it was like became producer. He brought in Ian Levine and Ian Levine, we go, well, I know about all this canon. And then it just ate itself into an, a, a mess of stuff like Attack of the Cybermen and other stories when they were so reliant on canon that the regular audience went we don't know this because we didn't research it or go back and find missing episode recordings that people have and share within uh fan groups and stuff like that so it's a case of that continuity we have was fan created the only franchise that i'm aware of where the continuity is something that was just disposable to whatever was best for the writers at the time and they'd move on to something else and even the viewers would move on because they weren't taping it and recording it and watching it again or binging it it's those fans that went no this is what how it makes sense this is how we can put it in a logical uh pattern in our minds and that's become somehow ingrained into the television culture as well it's 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 remarkable how that fandom obsession and fanaticism has been ingrained into the TV show, which never happens, you know. The fanaticism of Star Wars about the continuity is from the fanatic that is George Lucas. Uh, Same with the fanaticism of Star Trek, and the continuity is from how Gene Roddenberry saw his show and then Rick Bergman and the other people who took over. Um, But with with Doctor Who, the people who are running the show didn't have that. They didn't have a rule book. They just made it up as they went along and moved on to do whatever other show they wanted to do. And it was the fans left behind who who, who felt themselves to be the keepers of the, of, the, of the holy text and made it holier than it should have been. I was thinking, and I don't really sort of think about Big Finish much. You think about it a whole lot, Mark. <laughs> you know, uh, Time Lash, where I'm surprised yeah. they haven't done a story with the guy who's doing the Pertwee voice this, this week. And Joe Grant and Richard Franklin and saying, call it the Praetor Time Lash. And they can get John Coleshaw to be the voice of uh, Paul Darrow doing Richard the Third. Oh, that's a step too far, isn't it, really? <laughs> and then what they should do then is retcon the War Doctor to be Paul McGann. 
That's what John Hurt would have wanted. You've taken it too far now, Mark. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, the next letter we have there, uh, Rob, is from young Andy Taylor, and it's not the uh, guitarist from Duran Duran. No, no, it isn't. If it was, that would be remarkable. Uh, Hi, Mark and Rob. I think fans in general don't really like change in what's seen as established continuity. Just look at how fans have moaned about the recent Star Wars trilogy, the conclusion of Game of Thrones or Star Trek Discovery. Deadly Assassin was vilified in some corners as it changed uh, what had been shown uh, of the Time Lords from what uh, had been seen as uh, a godlike society looking over the universe and changing to scheming machinations. Adding to the mythology of a program is one thing, but total changing stuff, uh, totally changing stuff seems to me to be a case of wanting to make a mark as a production team. And we've talked about that, definitely. Uh, mm. Chibnall just retread already told stories or just wants to crowbar this stuff so uh, that people remember him for something. I can see why why the timeless child may not be popular. I didn't like it at all. I don't see the point of adding in all these extra unknown regenerations and life cycles. Shouldn't Clara have noticed when entering the Doctor's time stream? And as for making the Morbius Doctor's canon, does it really matter? I always assume there were Morbius previous bodies. Here, here. Yeah. Where are the originals and good ideas? Did Gallifrey need to be destroyed for the third time? <laughs> <laughs> I may not have liked everything Moffat did, but he did some good original stories. Look forward to the next episode of 42 to Doomsday. Cheers, Andy. Yeah, it's a whole point of going, we're okay with with big, bold storylines that are interesting and compelling and you know original. And it's harder to do the, the more you you do with the show. But, you know, it's, it's quite clear to, to many of us that these decisions that have been made are more to make a mark and be remembered as opposed to telling a good story. And that, you know, Moffat has been bemoaned quite a while and some of the decisions he made were just to make a mark and others he, you know, wanted to tell a good story and some of them have stuck and some of them haven't. So stuff like the, the you know, the Teletubby Daleks, he tried it, he wanted to make a mark, it didn't work, he moved on. Um, and he introduced some other things that were, you know, powerful and helpful and uh, stuff in season 10, which I particularly like, you know, he, he really developed the relationship between, between the master and the doctor, which hadn't been done properly really since, you know, Delgado and John Pertwee. So I really appreciated that. And did Gallifrey have to be destroyed, destroyed for a second or third or fourth time? No, it didn't. It really didn't. It was really pointless and really a waste of time. Uh, and it really got me angry. I know some people either, Gallifrey is either loved or hated. Like, I actually quite like Gallifrey. I like Gallifrey being around. You don't go to it all the time, but just having it there, I kind of like. But I know there's quite a lot of fans who go, oh, get rid of it. We don't need it. So it's really weird where people stand on it. Is it a failure of imagination in knowing how to deal with it? I mean, it seems to me that there's uh, endless, not endless, but uh, quite a lot of story ideas that you could use utilising Gallifrey but it's just the default at the moment seems like, well, let's blow it up or let's shunt it off somewhere else. And again, how how are you involving the audience in that particular storyline that, you know, that Gallifrey's been destroyed? Well, it's done off screen. It, it's done in such a manner that it doesn't involve the audience. There's no sense of menace or drama or tension or anything like that. It's just presented as a, a fait accompli. And, and where's, where's the entertainment value? Where's the drama that, you know, audiences are craving these days? It's just a cop-out and it's weak. Yeah, there's a line where Jodie Whittaker's doctor says, I've seen my home planet destroyed twice. And you're there going, see, even you saying that line is ridiculous. And Chibnall didn't even, it just shows how ridiculous 
build the cannon is eating itself as opposed to just focusing on stripping everything back keeping what you have on the table that what the show is and that you can make it work that way but there was no emotional investment for us because unlike with the day of the doctor where they push that conundrum of how many children and you have a connection to the doctor who's a hero to so many children could he let all those children die we get to Whitaker just walking out into Gallifrey and the whole planet's dead or the whole planet is turned into Cybermen. We go, well, we don't know any of these people. We don't know this connection. We do, we just, when we don't really care because it's just, it's, you know, oh my God, they've killed Gallifrey and we know it'll be back again, mumbling its way through a, a, a Parker or am I connecting that to South Park? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Our next letter is, is uh, Ben from the good old US of A. Uh, hello, Mark and Rob. Putting aside the time child revelations, the specific question you ask is why do some fans find it hard to accept major changes to Doctor Who canon? That is such an important question because something has changed in nerd culture, something damaging. Basically, there is no longer story debate, there is instead purity tests. Every fan has their own reason for whether they can accept a canon change. The problem is that before a fan's feelings can be explored or explained, they are under the immediate threat of a label being applied to them. If their opinion of a storyline goes against some predetermined way of thinking, the name calling suddenly comes out. Take your pick of the classics. Racist, sexist, xenophobe, Nazi. How can any fan even begin to try and unpack the revelation of a major canon shift if the threat of those names are waved in their face? When a fan's opinion of a sci-fi story is redefined as a morality test, then the fun is gone. And that's why some fans, I think, turn off completely. I really truly wonder, are some old school fans really rejecting the show? Or are they actually rejecting the baggage of the media thought police? If the threat of being labelled a Nazi is hanging over your head before you even get a chance to formulate a thought, where's the fun? So I totally understand why many long-time fans have the attitude of F this, I'm out. Honestly, from the way people on the internet talk, there are more Nazis around today than there ever were in the 30s. So why isn't Silver Nemesis more popular? (laughs) Thanks as always for the great conversation. Please keep it up. Ben from Indiana, USA. Thanks, Ben. That's interesting. How many times have you had people going uh, to you when you, you sort of challenge uh, something about the way the program is going? What would you know? You only watched it for the last two years or how many X years? That's the initial um, attack line, isn't it? Or how long have you been watching the program for? Mm. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's it's very much a case of now it's, we're getting to the point where Modern Who has been around for quite some time. And it's getting to that point where it's been around close to get, getting up there to the time when the original series was around so therefore like i said earlier on there's factions developing so there's people who only like the tenant era there's people who only like the matt smith era there are those people who have watched it from eccleston onwards there's some people who've never watched eccleston um there are people who started with the modern era and have gone back to watch the classics and watched a couple here or there and want to watch more there are those people who have gone back and watched every single episode of the classic era in order for some weird reason. And I keep on saying to fans who want to go back and watch classic, don't watch it in order. Just jump around. It's fine. You don't need to know. You pick it up as you go along. Um, So, yeah, the more factions there are, the more uh, rivalry there is. And it seems now... the, The healthy debate is gone and everyone gets ready for a war. Everyone gets ready for a battle as opposed to going, oh, let's have a healthy discussion about who, which it seemed to be back in the early days when it first came back in the modern era. Go, oh, let's have a chat about, you know, what do you think about Dalek? Oh, what did you think about the long game? 
it's now a case of well, what do you think of the Shakespeare Code? Now it's a case of everyone is preparing for battle. And that's exhausting and it wears people down. No wonder people are going and step away. Sometimes you just want to watch a show and have a bit of fun and have a healthy discussion as opposed to having to defend your knowledge, your purity, your understanding of, of the show. That's just the internet though. I remember when I joined the Doctor Who Club of Victoria in the early 90s and you know, you'd have discussions about, you know, what story you liked and what story you didn't like and the reasons why, but no one would no one would take up fisticuffs in the way that people verbally do it, you know, on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever. I mean, in, in, in terms of Ben and, and, and the purity test, I mean, if some, as soon as someone starts labelling you, you know, a, a misogynist or a racist, I mean, assuming that you aren't one, um, you've already won the argument, haven't, haven't you? Because if, if people have to resort to that, you know, what was it the term, ad hominem attacks, well, you win and there's no there's not even any point engaging with them. They're either engaging the performance for their followers or they're genuinely so shut off from the realities of the world around them that they, they have a perspective that has just backed them into a corner that they'll never be able to get out of. So don't even bother engaging with them. Exactly. It's easier to have a crack at somebody behind a keyboard as opposed to walking over to them and saying it to their face. The internet is a coward's castle. You can you can say, and I've done it before. I mean, I've been on the bloody internet for 30 years this year. And the sort of nonsense that I spouted on Rickard's Doctor Who, I mean, I'm embarrassed about it now. But you could do it from the the... the, the, the the uh, the security or the comfort of you know being an anonymous name on, on on a screen, thousands of miles away from everyone else. I mean that's what it is. People act. Uh, some of these people who engage in the the way they do about all sorts of things with regards to Doctor Who. If you had them in front of you, if you were standing, they would just have a normal conversation because they'd be too gutless for one to act in that manner because they know they get smashed in the face. It's as simple as that. <clears throat> they generally speaking are cowards. They're hiding behind their microphone. They're hiding behind their Twitter account. And they, they, they feel this impunity that, you know, you rarely have in the public space, you know, physically with other people. Um, and they just carry on like pork chops. And, you know, we, we know the value of, of their utterances, which are effectively nil. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a case of what I've found, like, by doing my posts on Who Me about the lists of episodes that I like and dislike or think are overrated or underrated and stuff like that, because there's just a sheer mass of stories and characters and genres within Doctor Who, if you keep on pushing the 50, you know, 57 years of history, you know, people are focusing on just on this particular season or this particular issue. If you just bombard them with, look at it all, see how big this is and see how unimportant issues that you hold on so tightly look at it all as a big 57 year story and it will go on for another 57 years and it will carry on because it'll shift and change and let's look at it all as a whole as opposed to just looking at one era one year one episode one story you can highlight all these parts as you go along and show that it will endure it's bigger than all of us it's bigger than one script writer it's bigger than one actor and that's how we can find some sort of common ground as opposed to people hiding behind a, a twitter handle or the yeah, anonymity of the world wide web so we'll we'll wrap up this discussion uh with one final letter this one is from marco capiello who's a long-term fan here in victoria hello marco um i've watched doctor who since i was a young boy i'm now 52 i've watched every single possible episode of doctor who at least once so you might be surprised to know that i had and still have no problem with what happened in the timeless children why Change is nothing new to Doctor Who. Ever since the events at the end of the Tenth Planet, viewers have been confronted with change on a major level. Were fans in an uproar when Patrick Troughton took over William Hartnell's face? Maybe. Thank goodness we had no social media back then. It took time for us to discover he was a Time Lord, that he could regenerate 12 times like all other Time Lords, 
and then even more time to discover that Time Lords could change gender through regeneration. The show is constantly evolving and adding to what we know about the Doctor and his and now her people. So finding out that the William Hartnell persona of the Doctor was not the first incarnation is just another of those changes and additions that came to light in The Timeless Children. Some people complained that Series 11 was boring or not interesting. Nothing earth-shattering happened. All of a sudden we have an intriguing mystery about the timeless child, who it could be and what it means, and now that we know it's the Doctor and it's about as earth-shattering as you can get on this show, people have a problem with it. A whole new backstory to the Doctor and we still don't know everything, like where does Ruth Doc fit in and how, and people take issue with it? Why? This has added new questions about how the child got to the planet where Tectuene found her, and just who is she and are there others like her? Are these people still around? Is the Doctor going to try to find them? Are they going to be good or bad people? Will they be new enemies on the show? People say there is no mystery anymore about the Doctor, but I've just asked a number of questions which all add up to a new mystery. This is good news for the show. Chibnall has just opened up the show to continue running and running, not just forwards, but backwards and maybe even sideways. Big Finish will be rubbing their hands with glee. I bet you they are. (laughs) (laughs) I probably haven't been more excited to see what happens next than I am right now. Just when we thought we knew everything and had all our toys and dolls numbered from 1 to 13, including a war doctor... Don't get me started on that one. ...we now know nothing again. I like that there are so many possible versions of the Doctor we don't know about, the adventures they could have had. This makes the show bigger, not smaller. As an older viewer born just a few years after the show started, I could balk that Chibnall has destroyed William Hartnell's memory. I really don't think Hartnell will be rolling in his grave that the character he started has lived on for 57 years, and will probably continue to live on long after we are all gone. That is what I call a legacy. No one can take that away from him. He was the first to portray the Doctor and forever will be. I'm sure he is smiling wherever he is at the legacy he helped to create. His memory will never die. Uh, Marco. Well done, Marco. Yeah, I don't think, yeah, anyone who's saying that this reinvention is sort of like uh, lessened Hartnell's memory or anything like that, I I think it's a bit right. Hartnell's uh, importance in the show and his mark on the show is, is, is constant and will carry on forever as will, you know, all those people behind the scenes who carried it on. It's just, yeah. And when, and I, I respect him saying about the more questions that are coming about. Um, I'm more along the lines of those questions um, don't seem as interesting or they seem to be quite generic. And I can see those type of questions asked in a hundred other sci-fi shows, as opposed to the questions that I liked asking in show in Doctor Who that was so unique for that. So I like the uniqueness of our show. Well put together email, I reckon. I reckon Stephen Moffat did more damage to Hartnell anyway. With that <laughs> twice upon a time travesty. I really like twice upon a time and I like um what what it what it did and what uh the message it was it was conveying. So but yeah. Again, but there are some things we agree on Mark and some things that we don't. But. I was quite angry about the uh, the ep- the end of the episode, especially the damaging the cannon. A couple of weeks after the fact, have we sort of calmed down a bit, or are we we still quite um, violently opposed to what happened, or what, what's your sort of overalling feeling about it? Look, Mark, I'm not so invested in the show that uh, I'm ready to man the barricades and, and and take on City Hall about it. I mean, it is just a television show, and as we've you know mentioned throughout uh, this episode, uh, at some point it will be retconned. I mean, I know I remember when people were up were up in arms that. The Eighth Doctor was half human and, you know, people were searching around for excuses as to how that couldn't possibly be. And it, 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 even even then it seemed like it was just, too, you know, trying too hard to just come to a solution that made you feel better about yourself and life in general. Um, look, I, I, 
like Rob has been saying, it takes away all the mystery. Uh, and while Marco is happy that it throws up a whole lot of other questions, I'm not necessarily sure that it's the right approach to, you know, rejuvenating the show or sending it off in a particular direction. I, I think that leaving a bit of mystery and ambiguity uh, about a topic that, you know, we really don't really need to worry about too much. All we should be worried about is the quality of the show and how entertaining it is, and is it a good adventure in time and space? And, you know, I don't think as an episode The Timeless Children was a particularly good episode and a good use of its time. Um, I would have far preferred something else that, you know, would have gripped me a bit, you know, tighter and, and left me feeling more excited. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I don't think it's ruined the show. I don't think it's destroyed the show. I don't think there's any power in, in, in any actor or writer can really bring the show to its knees. It's too good for that. It's too brilliant a concept. But it's definitely knocked the win out of my enthusiasm. I kind of got to the reveal of um, the, the Christmas special and normally I'd be quite excited and I've kind of gone a bit schmear. But with all franchises that have stuck around with me for so long, I have moments of you know, attraction and interest and commitment, and then I back off and fade away. So, and even within the modern era, I've done that. I mean, there were still some episodes in ep- in series 12 that I really liked. There's some episodes that I really adored. I loved um, uh, the episode with Mary Shelley. I loved the episode with Tesla. I think they were done really, really well. Um, there's some dogs in there. You know, um, uh, Orphan 55 was an absolute, you know, uh, bland sandwich of... Uh, of Excrement. Excrement, yeah. Re- recurring old stories. So it's a case of it, it hasn't killed the show. It hasn't destroyed the show. It hasn't ruined everything. It's made some bad decisions that have made the show less interesting and more generic. But, you know, um, it will go on. It will wreck on things. It will move on. It will shape it into a different way. And, you know, that's the way the show is. You know, it will absorb, if it can absorb a big revelation like the Doctor's half-human, it will absorb anything else that comes out. No one has ever talked about the half-human thing ever again. And that was in 1996. <laughs> Before we wrap up, guys, uh, we had some feedback on our last episode, Rob. Uh, the first one is from Simon J, uh, who says, Hello, guys. This lockdown has been great for catching up on podcasts, and I'm loving 42 to Doomsday. Really good banter, humour, and plenty of insight into the great and not-so-great associated with Doctor Who. Couple of things puzzling me though is fan wank a term of abuse, and do you actually like Big Finish? The choices for a favourite season of Doctor Who was a great listen. Keep up the great work, regards Simon. Fan wank is it a term a term of abuse? It's a term of affection, if you know what I mean. It can be used either in a positive or negative way. It can be done affectionately, and it could be said quite bitingly as well. In terms of do we hate Big? No, uh, do we actually like them? Well, yeah, I used to like them when they weren't you know, pandering to canon. Uh, I used to like them when they were doing more original stories than what they have been just churning stuff out now. So, we look, we tease them because, um, well, it's, it's easy to do, really. I mean, it, it does yeah. provide, you know, a work and a creative outlet for a whole host of people. So, I mean, from that perspective, you know, I, I really admire what Big Finish have done. And remember, they've been doing it for over 20 years now. Um, and I think I, their, their output got so much, got so you know huge that it, it was just impossible to uh, to to keep up and to um, fiscally responsibly keep up. I mean, you could be spending, you would be spending thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to buy their output if you were if you were a dedicated purchaser. And 
it's just too much. It's it's just the the thought of trying to catch up with their back catalogue now is just exhausting. Oh yeah, um, you know, less is more approach really. Look, I'm still upset with them for knocking back my 23 CD boxer of the Bandrill Ambassadors Adventures in uh, <laughs> <laughs> space politics. Let it go, Mark. Let it go. <laughs> never forget. Never forgive, Rob. You're not alone, Mark. I mean, I 42 disc <laughs> uh, interactive adventure with Bilal from Death of the Daleks, and um, <laughs> apparently that was too obscure, and that was too much fan wank, and that was fan wank used in a negative connotation. So I would have paid. Be sure to pay attention on my website or on the <laughs> Facebook page where I'll be doing my own independent release of my own audio adventure where I play Bilal <laughs> and every other character. The banal Bilal. <laughs> <laughs> the beige adventures of banal lighting up the cd shelves near you <laughs> the next uh, bit of feedback was uh, from our old mate aaron challenger who says uh, your coronas of the sun episode should uh, include a consumer warning as it contains the terms laminated samantha fox poster and fang glaze in the same hour also if mark is in hiatus does this mean that your next cast will include a charity single produced by ian levine to get his job back uh, pilots in distress we have contacted ian um but no he's a bit busy at the moment uh, producing other charity singles um, like Retcon, The Timeless Child. <laughs> it's going to be a duet with Philip Morris, isn't it? Oh, yes. That would be the ebony and ivory of uh, Doctor Who music. Side by side in my warehouse. Yeah, it'd be fantastic. <laughs> 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 Let's just get those two together. The world's in crisis. Look, if, if Phil and Ian can come together, then the Palestinians and the Israelis, the uh, Iranians <laughs> and the uh, the Saudis, and Donald Trump and the rest of the world, it's just <laughs> <laughs> can come together. <laughs> oh dear. Rob, Lloyd, thank you very much for joining us again. Great to have you back strapping it on with us tonight. I'm so happy that Best Australian Doctor Who podcast has uh, dusted itself off and got back in the game. It's great to hear you guys back online and uh, letting your opinions wild. You heard that, Australia? The best podcast in the land. (laughs) Obviously, the check has cleared Rob from our Patreon account. And thank you so much for investing in my Bilal audio series. The Banal Bilal, coming soon to Happy Finish Productions. And he meets the Banjil Ambassador. Oh, look, yeah, the franchise after franchise that we can create is endless. There's going to be so much swimming in fanglaze here. Anyway, <laughs> and on that uh, sticky end, I've been Mark. I've been Rob. I've been Rob. Keep punching! You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.